Good morning. This is Pej. It's May 20th, 2023. We are on the Recovery Podcast, Pej's Recovery Corner, where we talk about all things recovery um, with various people from all walks of life about their journeys. Some of them are in recovery. Some of them are professionals that work in the recovery world. Um, so grateful to be here today. Uh, we have actually revamped and created this new studio. We brought it back last month with Dr. B, and uh, today will be our second episode since the revamping uh, process. Uh, I've got an excellent guest here today. It's a good, good friend that's in recovery, and he's doing a lot of great things in his world. His name is Dean C. Welcome, Dean. Thank you very much, Pesh. Good okay. to be here. Um, so, Dean, tell me, we want to learn about you and who you are, and then we'll get into the other stuff afterwards, uh, kind of like your upbringing, you know, what you got into, what you got out of, and why. So, Dean, where were you born? I was born in Warsaw, Indiana. Okay. And did you uh, always live in Indiana? No. When I was three months old, uh, we moved to northern New Jersey, about a half hour out of uh, New York City. Okay. And so you grew up grew in up. Jersey mainly? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, siblings? I have an older brother. He's about seven years older than me. Okay. Growing up in Jersey, what was that like as a, as a youngster? Um, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. The neighborhood I grew up in. I mean, I, I grew up in an upper middle class family and my parents always offered me and provided for me all the things, you know, sports, music. Um, you know, I never really wanted for anything, but um, just the vibe of my neighborhood. It was the early 80s. You know, it was a different time than it is now. Um, I don't know if it was so much New Jersey as, as me, what was going on inside of me. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't, uh, I didn't like myself very much growing up and I don't know why, you know, like my parents provided me everything that I needed, but there was just something internal in me, like voices in my head that always told me I was less than, that, you know, I wasn't achieving my, my best potential. Okay. And, um, were you ever bullied? No, I was never bullied. I was, uh, you know, I pretty much fit in with everybody. I used that uh, chameleon aspect that a lot of addicts and uh, alcoholics do to, to kind of blend in with everybody. Could read people really well right off the bat and decide, you know, what they wanted. To, I would reflect what they wanted to see. And what was your education like? Um, I went to private school up until about fifth grade, and then my mom yanked me out and I went to or, or public school to fifth grade and then private school for fifth and sixth grade. Um, back to public school for high school, uh, and I went to college in um, Pennsylvania. What you study in college? Um, I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy and comparative religions. Okay. Now, also, you you got a musical background. You're a musician. Yes. And when did you first start getting into music? What did you play? At first, so my brother's an actor, yeah, and he did a lot of musical theater when I was growing up, and so I got into acting and singing and joining chorus. And I've heard um, you sing. You sing really good. You got a hell of a you. voice. Thank yeah. you. So, uh, but was it at that time? Was it, how old were you when you got into that? Um, I say I was about ten years old. Okay. And then uh, you know when I turned into a teenager, I was really into the punk scene, really into skateboarding, and I formed my first punk band in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And then in high school, I had a band that I formed, um, and played in high school. And then when I went to college, I really dove into it. And uh, my band got signed about a week after I graduated college. I toured the East Coast for three years and toured the West Coast uh, for three years. Okay. Now, drugs and alcohol. When did you first start getting into 
anything that uh, affected you from the head up? Um, I mean, when I was younger, my older brother, my mom would throw a lot of like dinner parties and stuff. And I, you know, we would sip the, the glasses of wine, never really had an effect. It was more, I was doing something I knew I shouldn't be doing. And I got a rush of, you know, being bad type of thing. Yeah. But 13, me and my friend had a sleepover and we, you know, raided uh, his parents' liquor cabinet and did shots of vodka. And that was like the first time that I really, you know, felt the effects of alcohol. Okay. And uh, were you the type of person that could drink all night long? Were you a belligerent drunk or were you? No, I never really crossed the line. You know, as far, I wasn't a Jekyll and Hyde drinker, even towards the end, you know, um, even my ex-wife would be like, you know, I'd finish a fifth of vodka and she'd be like, I can't even tell you're drunk. Mm -hmm. um, but once I experienced the alcohol within, I'd say about six months, I'd tried everything under the sun. Like I went from zero to 60. I need to find anything that, that numbed me. And when did you start getting into other substances? Same age, about 15, 16 years old. And what kind of substances were they? Well, living so close to New York City, um, you know, I used to drive into the South Bronx to to get weed. And South Bronx, they pretty much offered everything on the street back then. I mean, this is before beepers or cell phones or anything. You had to drive in and go into the hood to get what you needed. Okay. Um, and so within that time, I pretty much tried everything under the sun until I was about 16 years old. Okay. Uh, when you say anything, like what, what are you talking? Hallucinogens? Opiates, yeah. Hallucinogens, What kind of opiates? opiates? Um, heroin, mainly. Were you smoking it? No, sniffing it. Sniff and was it China White, obviously, if you're on the East Coast? Yeah. Okay, what about stimulants? Cocaine? Never really got, I mean, I, I dabbled in cocaine and it never was really my thing. I was more into the, you know, I'm, I'm ADHD, so I was a hyperactive child. Yeah. I was on Ritalin from kindergarten until high school. Oh, so they, from kindergarten? Yeah, seven years old. So wait. They put you on Ritalin at that young of an age. Mm -hmm. This is, a, I want to kind uh, of get into that yeah. a little bit. So I've had some, uh, some conversations with lots of people and it's a hot topic and a lot of people will uh, kind of argue this, but I've also worked in many different settings where I ask kids that, or people that are, that have had major addiction problems, if they, at some point in their life where, um, uh, prescribed Ritalin at a very young age. And if by chance uh, being uh, put on some kind of substance to, to kind of stabilize them or level them out, if that possibly could have, um, you know, unleashed the addictive part of their mental brain chemistry, right? Like to get them into other stuff later on down the line. Um, do you think that's the case with you? I don't think it's the case with me. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've, you know, I've gone, I've done a lot of writing. I'm a big person into journaling and digging back into my past and kind of, you know, opening the wound and cleaning it out type of thing. And yeah. I, I've looked into that. Um, <clears throat> I myself being a parent right now have a son who, you know, displays some, some ADD behavior. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't put him on it. Um, it definitely turned me, you know, it, it definitely helped me. I mm -hmm. went from being the class clown to pretty much a, a learning robot. So usually the, the intention of giving somebody that's a youngster, like in their youth, um, that type of substance is because they are hyper or they're, they act out and that kind of levels them out as opposed to an adult that gets put on Ritalin to be more, um, you know, assertive and, and attentive in whatever type of lifestyle that they're living. Correct. Correct. Okay. So when you got into the other stuff, that's when you're saying like you got into the opiates and any other stuff, the alcohol, the hallucinogens, did you do hallucinogens? Yes. Growing up, mm -hmm. when was the first time you tried hallucinogens? Um, and what did you try? I think it was mushrooms. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, probably around 16, 17. And then what about um, any LSD or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I used to go into strawberry fields in Washington Square Park and buy buy sheets acid and, you know, flip those back in high school. Flip them as in sell them? Sell them. So I would, you know, I used to, I used to eat LSD like candy. Like oh. I would just eat it and go to school and stuff. Okay. Um, but I, I kind of grew out of that. Okay. But most people do. Yeah. Most people do. Um, and then down the line... When you got, obviously you went, you graduated high school. Did you graduate on time? Yep. And then you went to university or a college? Uh, or yeah, I went to a college in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and uh, Were you a full-blown addict or alcoholic at this point? No, just... I hadn't. I hadn't, you know, I dabbled with the heroin, but it, I never was physically addicted to it. It was more just like, oh, yeah, I'll try that type of thing. It was never a daily thing. I never went through a draw or anything like that. So you were able to go to school and perform well and all that? Mm -hmm. because I graduated with, uh, I believe, a 3.2 from high school. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was, that was me not giving a hundred percent, you know, that was me kind of like, I know I'm if you'd have given a hundred percent, it probably wouldn't have been hard for you as an individual. Oh yeah. I probably would have went to Harvard or something like that. If I, I mean, whenever myself. we, whenever you and I have conversations, it's very clear to me that you are educated, like just by the way that you speak and you know who you are. And I know you're, you, there's a wealth of knowledge in that brain of yours. So that's great. Yeah. Now, when you finished in, you, did you go to college for how many years? Went to college four years, finished in four years. And you got your degrees. Um, I got my degrees. Um, and as well, I formed that band. And, you know, my mind remember. And the band that. was a touring band, correct? Yeah, we started out in the college circuit and then we toured on a college circuit, like from Maine all the way down to Virginia. Okay. And the way it's set up for college tours is there's, you know, regions. And did you get signed or anything like that? Yeah, so we did a demo, um, and then uh, we shopped it to a production, a producer, and you know we booked studio times, and then a, a subsidiary of Sony Records picked. I mean, we still have, you know, we're still on Apple Music and iTunes and uh, Amazon and all that stuff. And did you end up uh, down the line uh, touring with any major groups or opening? For we anyone? opened up uh, for some for some bit on the college uh, circuit, circuit, some yeah. some bigger okay. bigger acts. And then um, when did the drug use or the alcohol or both start mm -hmm. to kind of take so, off? So um, I moved after college. I moved to Baltimore, uh, outside of Baltimore, Maryland, because it was close to Philly, New York. Like it was easy to, to drive to those cities. And uh, I was on I was on tour for three weeks. I had an apartment with my girlfriend at the time and I came back. Where'd found, you have the apartment? Where? Yeah. Outside of Baltimore. Oh, outside of Baltimore. Okay. Um, and I was like on a There ain't no drugs tour. in Baltimore, is there? <laughs> <laughs> um, we know. It's rough. And uh, I came back from a three-work tour. The phone rang at three in the morning with some guy. Found out she'd been cheating on me. And uh, I said, all right, the apartment's yours. The cat's yours, everything. And I couch surfed for about three months, and I convinced the whole band to move out to Portland, Oregon. And we did. We drove cross country, and we moved out there. And that's when I started playing the West coast. Okay. Um, and recently I was in Portland doing an intervention yes. and I uh, had never been to Portland. I've been to 33 States, but this will be the 34th and I'd never been there. Didn't know how bad it has gotten in downtown Portland, but it's you were telling me way. some stuff. So when you were in Portland, what was that like? Huge, huge youth homeless population there, uh, downtown. And this was like 20 this years ago, 20, this is 2000 to 2004. Okay. But I live there. So it's worse than ever now. From my friends that still live there. Yeah, they tell me it's it's gotten a lot worse. Okay. And then you got a lot worse? Yeah. Um, so from that breakup, I pretty much ran 3,000 miles away from the breakup. I got into, you know, opiates a little heavier. 
um, to kind of numb myself from the pain of the breakup. When I got out there, I when told we me, say got into opiates a little heavier, are we pills, talking pills? Vicodin, yeah, pills yeah, Vicodin. yeah. It wasn't quite heroin. No, okay. no. And uh, when I moved out there, I asked myself, how serious do you want to take this mu music? And I quit everything. Beer, I mean, I didn't drink. Yeah. And I just dove into the music. I said, if you want to do this, you have to do this 100%. And I, you know, I was dry. Okay. I didn't use for about three months. I remember 9-11 happened and I was out there and, and, you know, my bandmates were, you know, ripping bong hits and stuff. And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, I need to experience and feel life, especially as an artist. And, you know, like. So about writing. three months, you weren't doing anything. Didn't do anything. Just focused on the music. So and when I, uh, I got into a car accident, someone hit me. And this is 2004. This is when Oxycontin was, you know, being prescribed. Oxy-80s? Started out with 20s. Yeah. The doctor prescribed me. But I was, you know, I was hooked after three months. And then they started weaning me down. And I would just take more. And then from that point, that's when I started wait, wait, smoking black tar. Wait, hold on. Let's back up here. They started weaning you down. Mm -hmm. As in the doctor was weaning you down? Yeah. So he would give me tens. Take tens every four hours or okay. whatever. Never take... gave you 80s, actually. No. Okay. No. So that wasn't enough for you by the time you were weaned down. Was some kind of beast unleashed within your yeah. attic brain, perhaps? 100%. And then that made you, because the doctors kind of, did he cut you off? Well, I was done, you know, I, the insurance thing. I, I sued the other driver and, you know, got got a grip load of money from that, which wasn't good. Yeah. Um, and in that time, I had, I'd met enough people out there in those circles that uh you know i started getting into the 80s and okay stuff like but that. this is what i want to know and this is really for me it's important to know mm -hmm. when he's weaning you off the doctor and now that you're not going to be able to get any more or something like that were you already in a, in a mind state where you're like no i still need to be doing that yeah 100 so then you started to seek it out as in like the 80s that were actually out there and mm -hmm. those times were different yeah they weren't if, fentanyl there was none of that no, stuff if in. people were distributing 80s during that time they were really oxy 80s it was because there was dirty doctors and people had gotten scripts and they were going and getting uh, you know i actually knew a manager of a pharmacy oh, who would even better for, for, for an addict like that's yeah. like the treasure trove yeah. so uh so you started getting those and um when you were doing oxy eighties during that time, were you smoking them? Were you what are you snorting them? Were you snorting them? Snorting them. Okay, and they were still you were getting a major effect from snorting them, right? Mm -hmm. Because I know that during that time, also for people that were uh, heroin users um, that shot intravenously, they would get the oxy eighties because they were perfect to mm -hmm. you know they, they, they were water were, soluble, yeah, more soluble, then. and then you were able to shoot them intravenously. But then down the line, they got into Roxy's, which made it harder, but people still figured out how to do that. Well, we won't get into any of that unless you got into that. Did you? I get didn't. Into that? No, I never got okay. into that. You didn't get into that. So down the line, um, you said you started to get into heroin. Yeah, that wasn't until, I mean, I smoked a little bit of the black tar while I was out and out there, but it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't an IV user. So what happened with, with heroin? Like what? So the 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 opiates that i was doing out there really took me down and within three years i uh, i'd pawned i don't know maybe 12 guitars all my amps sold my car um and then you know i had no place to live pretty much the the lease was up on the house we rented the bass player got married the drummer got engaged type of thing and you know i called mom and dad and said i need i need you to fly me back home and i gotta move in with you guys because i i couldn't jersey, take care jersey of myself. or new york jersey okay um, I know I was no longer able to stand stand on my own two feet at that point. And how old were you then? 
27, I think. 27. So they flew you back home. Flew me back home. And then during that time while staying with them, were you attempting to change your life or yeah. get sober? Yeah. Yeah. Did you get sober? Not sober, but stopped. Yeah. I, I uh, brought some methadone with me and I weaned off that somewhat. I didn't sleep for a month, withdraw from methadone Wait, for a month. Let, let's get into that real quick. So you got into methadone. Well, I just brought some back with me. I had a plug. And from I Oregon. Brought, from Oregon. So did you go to a clinic? Nope. Okay. How'd you get methadone? Doctor? New, no, new people. Street methadone. Methadose. There were 10 milligram. Yeah, I got a script. I knew, I knew a lot of people out in Oregon. They were only 10 milligram. Yeah. Was it helping you with your opiate addiction? Yeah. For how long? For about three weeks till I ran out of them. And then I quit methadone cold turkey, which was the worst withdrawal I've ever had. I've seen life. people quit methadone or in a, actually in a detox setting, especially people that are on a higher dosage. Mm -hmm. And it looks like they need an exorcism. Yeah. Yeah. So you're doing this. I did not sleep literally for 30 days. I believe it. So you were, you did this on your own within the, within your home. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That must've been excruciatingly painful. Yeah. Okay. So when you quit and kicked that, mm -hmm. um, did you, were you still using other stuff? I drank, I drank, hadn't really crossed the line with the drink. I got a job as a bartender of all things. And then the money from bartending started to roll in and then, you know, were you just a regular drinking drinker during that time? No, no, that's probably when I started. I was beer only, but you know, I would drive around the neighborhood and drink like a tall boy type of thing. And this is into your later 20s. This is later 20s, yeah. Okay, tell me about how you. I mean, I know you had some health conditions, I think they were as a result of drinking. A using? combination, yeah, a combination. drinking and using. What are the health conditions? So I have cirrhosis of the liver. 40% of my liver is permanently scarred. And how did you get that? Uh, hepatitis C and drinking on top of having hepatitis C. Was hepatitis C from heroin use? Mm -hmm. And that is from a dirty needle? Mm -hmm. Why did you, okay, so during that time, late 20s, when did you start getting into heroin? After that bartender, after I was in bar, I got into it, and then I couldn't find oxys anymore, and so that's so, when I got into. So you're getting oxys on the east coast for a little bit, but then you couldn't find them. Yep. Okay. So then you got into heroin, and that mm -hmm. would be China White. Yep. What made you first ever take a needle? Like, think it's okay to take a needle and put it in your body? I had people that I was surrounding myself with that were doing that and said, you could save money and blah, blah, blah. You know, the rush is quicker. And so I tried it. And Was there a fear of your very first time trying it? No, 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 I was off the rails at that point. I didn't really care about my body or myself. Or and you kind like of, that. it was a no brainer. You knew that if you did it intravenously, it would, it be, would an be a done deal. Effect. Everyone told me that you do it this way. You're never going to do it another way. And then how long were you doing heroin? 15 years until I got sober. Overdoses? Several. Uh, One where I actually died. You know, they Narcan me. That didn't work. They zapped me with the paddles. There was Narcan back then? This was in 2015. Okay, so this was much later. Mm -hmm. Now, So through that process, during that time, I got married. I got engaged. I, I, on the meth I got on a methadone program. I went back to school. I got an x-ray degree. I got a surgical tech degree. And, you know, through the methadone maintained, uh, maintained, I say, a lifestyle of a normal person. Wow. Now, when were you first diagnosed with uh, hep C? 
within that time? 2014, and they just come out with Harvoni, which was uh, the, the first time it was a 98% cure rate, and I got on that and it was viral free in 2015. Is that the medicine that actually helps people overcome hepatitis C? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. And I know before that they used to use – what was the other one that was like – as bad as very painful. They had to do injections in your what stomach. What was that one called? Um, interferon. Interferon, which is, from what I had heard, uh, feels like you have the flu for three months, yeah. and it was very yeah. So I just the, the doctor said they're coming out with this new stuff. Just wait. Okay. Um, and that's what you waited for. Yeah. Now and like I said, the Hep C didn't come out of nowhere. It was because you used a dirty needle. Mm-hmm. And what was that? Were you amongst people shooting mm-hmm. heroin? And oh yeah. And did the thought go across your mind during that time? That this- yeah, the thought comes across your mind, but you're so sick that you need to get well that you don't care. So that you, the person you're sharing it with is there's no cleaning the needle or anything like that. I tried, huh? I tried, but it still got through. Yeah, obviously. Mm-hmm. At least you tried. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I know. I know when we're in that that mentality that addict mentality it's it's all about the rush and what Mm -hmm. we're we're looking to get high yeah we want to get the effect and who cares about anything that might put our health in harm's way but regardless uh the your liver tell us about that when how did that happen well having you know having hepatitis c which is you know it's a, a virus that affects your liver Mm-hmm. When you're drinking a fifth or more vodka on top of that and your liver can't process that amount of alcohol and it's also a diseased liver, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. So were you drinking this vodka while you were doing heroin? Mm-hmm. Two depressants. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you were – why were you drinking and doing heroin? I mean I know you and I have talked So when I tried to quit the opiates, the drinking I would use as a crutch to help me get through the withdrawals. And then that just became a thing. And then I would get back on the opiates. And then, you know, so you then I'm just pounding doing your liver, pounding my liver. Yeah. And through that I had, you know, I, um, I jaundice, I woke up very yellow. I had had my gallbladder emergency removed. I've had surgeries on my throat. When somebody has jaundice and they wake up yellow, that means their face, their lips. What is it? Eyeball, the whites of your eyes, your skin, your whole skin is yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and I had what, to have. Did a, you know you had jaundice or someone told you? That yeah, I mean, I was like peeing like black coffee. I mean, my, my urine was so dark. These are all symptoms. And I had a pain in my stomach. I went to the hospital and they said, you have gallstones. As a when you result. say peeing like black coffee, was it blood or was it? No, it's just your body, your body's not processing urine. So the urine content is so, you know, yellow, dark brown, brown, black. I mean, that's gnarly. Yeah. That's crazy. All right. So when you were first told by a doctor, how old were you that you have uh, cirrhosis? Uh, 30, 32, something like that. And when you got that news, were you in active addiction and alcoholism? Oh, yeah, yeah. They told me, they said, if you continue to drink like this, you'll be dead in two years. Did you quit? No. Nope. Many alcoholics Mm -hmm. that get cirrhosis that are hardcore alcoholics, they hear that news and it doesn't affect them. They'll still drink. That's what happened to me. My my disease brain told me that that's just, oddly enough, the doctor's opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Uh, He's just, what does he know? He doesn't know. Yeah. He doesn't know how I live my life. You know, you think you're invincible when you're in that disease state and you think, I'm never going to, I'm never going to OD. I'm never going to have cirrhosis. You know, you you think you're invincible. So then what? Then, uh, so then a series of rehabs. I I have an amazing, amazing ex-wife who stood by me through about seven treatment centers, three times in Florida, Texas, Pennsylvania, 
you know, and eventually when that came to a head, what saved me is she said, I'm done. All the other times she said, you have one more shot, but I heard in her voice, I got another one. The same ex-wife that you had the kid with mm -hmm. and your kids how old? 10. Okay. So was your kid, obviously in the last 10 years, you have five years in those previous five years of your recovery, was your kid aware or growing no. up around? Uh, no, and I've made amends to him since then and asked him if he remembered any of that stuff, and he doesn't. But uh, but you weren't in the kid's life at the time. I was. Could, I was the sole, you know. Like you were she, always there. I wasn't uh, healthy you were there, mentally you and physically there. You present. to work. Yeah. So the wife worked. I drove him to daycare. I picked him up from daycare. I made dinner. I, put, I was a house husband pretty much because I couldn't get my stuff together enough to maintain a job. So she was the main provider financially for the family. And so when you were driving him to daycare and all yes. that, were you ever under mm -hmm. the influence? Always, always. And the, the, when you got sober, were you guilt, did you feel guilty about that? Yes, 100%. And it, when you say I made amends to him, was that one of the things? I mean, it's kind of hard to Yeah, find Yeah, I asked him if he remembered any of that stuff. He doesn't. Yeah. You know, I asked him if, uh, you know, daddy has a lot of guilt about leaving you for three years when mm -hmm. I got sober here in California. But, you know, kids are very resilient. He's he, he remembers me being in his life and not that I was drinking. Yeah. Um, and he knows how present a father I am now. And he thinks, you know, it's he always tells me what an amazing dad I am. Okay. As well as my ex-wife does. So what led you in the path of real recovery, like really getting sober 100%? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you went to all these treatment centers. How many treatment centers did you go to? Total through my whole life? Yeah. Probably about 10. When we say through inpatient your whole life, were outpatient. some of them when you were younger? 15 was the first one outpatient I went to. It was just an outpatient adolescent type of program? Yeah. Okay. And then when was the next one? Uh, when I got back from Oregon. That was a place in Pennsylvania. How long did you go to that? Two weeks. Was it Karen? No. It wasn't the Karen Foundation? No. No. Okay. But I can, you know, I, I talked to my parents into getting me out of there after two weeks. I said I was cured, you know. Oh, you worked your way out of that one. Worked my way out of that one. And okay. then once I got married, then it was a series of 30-day, 45-day inpatient all over the country. Okay. So you were kind of just doing the tour. I was doing the tour. You know, towards the last three, I really was nothing wanted sticking? it. No, it stuck while I was in there, but I didn't do it. It was suggested when I got out, which is, you know, as soon as you get off that plane, you go to a meeting, you got, you get a sponsor, yeah. you work the steps. And a lot of people and I want to wanted do to do it my way or halfway or 75% of the way. And the only way that works, as you know, is you give it 100%. So then in the final Yeah, the greatest state. gift my ex-wife ever gave me, she dropped me off at the airport and said, we're done. There are no more warmer chances. And I knew I only, and I burned all my bridges. My friends weren't talking to me anymore. And I, I said, I only have myself to rely on myself now to save my life. And so I then flew you went, out here to Laguna Beach. You went to California. Yeah. What, what made you come to California for treatment? I actually, I got sober with a guy in a place in Texas from Oklahoma and I, I became good friends with him. I was sober for a period of time until I had the gallbladder surgery. And I got him into a treatment center out here in California. And when I relapsed, I called him and he said, dude, you got to come out to California. Like this is the place to get sober. And so I said, all right, I never been to California for treatment. Anyway, I had been here for, for vacation and stuff. And I came out and I hit the ground running like my life depended on it. Cause I knew it did. And do you think that this time was different because your wife basically wrote you off? That was the, that, I think that was the catalyst, but um, I was tired. I was tired of, of spending time away from my family, from my son, and just being How old in, were you during that time? 40, 41 when I got sober. 
Okay. And uh, I came out here and I did everything was just it. And what was good is, is shout out to Oceanfront. That's the place I got sober. Is at 3.30 when you were done programming for the day, they let you have the freedom to do what you want. The other places, they locked me in a building for 45 days. And I wasn't able to experience what life outside of rehab was like. Okay. Here, they gave you the freedom. Hey, if you want to go home and watch Netflix, you can watch Netflix. If you want to go to a meeting and I got a sponsor right away. I would Uber to the Canning Club in the morning. I would do the meetings that were required for them at night. And I would do step work. My sponsor would pick me up at the treatment center. I was supposed to be here for 30. I stayed for 90. Um, I saw Steve-O speak at the Canning Club. And he said, he give yourself two years in a sober living. And so I made a promise to myself to do that. And within six months, I was managing two sober livings out here. Mm-hmm. And I did the two years and then I didn't feel like I was ready to live on my own. So as you know, I got a house with some other sober friends and I did a year of that. And then after that, that's when I, I moved back. So to that's Jersey. a great way of fortifying your recovery. You built your foundation, mm-hmm. you started building the walls to kind of fortify it and keep mm-hmm. everything in place. And I remember that you were living at some people's houses that were all sober people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, um, then you decided to over a period of time move back to Jersey because uh, God, okay. God pointed me that direction. I was very safe out here. Mm-hmm. I had a huge friendship. I was making really good money. Um, and uh, your kid was out there, obviously. My kid was out there, but there was a lot of fear of me moving back to Jersey because that's the only thing I knew there was the way I used. Right. And I know for a lot of people, when you relocate, when you have a strong foundation of recovery, Mm -hmm. you got to start all over again by getting a new fellowship in that area. And a lot of people fall when that happens. So, you know, I was scared with three years of sobriety that I was going to fall. But I did as I tell my sponsees to do, you know, is anyone 30 days or less? No, I have three years, but I don't know anybody. I need some numbers after the meeting. I need to get plugged in. And I did that within six months. I I had a a home group, a strong fellowship. Mm -hmm um out there so uh and obviously like you your recovery i mean you were very involved in your own personal development and recovery process Mm -hmm. um yeah a lot of people fall if they're not really engulfed in their recovery process right um but i I, you and i always stayed in touch and when you moved out there you can you as you said you plugged in Mm -hmm. to your community but you also for your personal development through your recovery process continue to work on you and then be of service to others and help newer people which is that's the way to go mm-hmm. i mean it's not just in the recovery process i think in in our world the the best way a human being could really find their own um inner self and be in their purest form is by being a, of service to others that's why yeah. you know we see that's what i learned out here in cal and i remember calling you out there and i was like pez recovery is not like it is out here and you said so make your own. And so Create I started your own environment. Yeah. So I started some book studies in my house with, a, you know, I did, I started a drop the rock book study, which not a lot of people out in, in my group knew about the book, drop the rock. Yeah. Step six and seven, I think are very paramount to my own recovery. Sure. Um, yeah. There's some of my favorite steps. I mean, they're all my favorite, obviously, but that removal of character defects and shortcomings really, you know, on a daily basis, helps me take a harder look at myself throughout my day. Yes. Um, I, you know, I started speaking at treatment centers all over there. Um, you know, Christmas time, I would bring gifts to the people and in detox. Cause that was done for me when I was out here. And, mm-hmm. and I you know just being a service, you know, yeah, helps me stay sober. 
Now, in your everyday life, as far as what you were doing occupation-wise, uh, you were selling cars both in California, and then when you moved out there, you were selling newer car, new cars then. Mm -hmm. um, it was during a time when the pandemic was in full effect. I think the stocks of stock of cars was low, uh, but you're still doing very well for yourself mm -hmm. as much as you could. But in this last year, things changed for you. There was a shift in your perception of what you wanted to do with yourself and how yeah. you wanted to, to help people. What did you do to change uh, in this last year? Because I know you're doing some, some new stuff. Talk about yeah. That. I mean, I am. So my first spiritual awakening is as a result of the first time I did the 12 steps. I've done my steps. I usually do my steps once a year. Mm -hmm. I've done them four times. As you know, I've done them twice with you. You've, you've got me through the steps. Um, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we carry this message to alcoholics who still suffer. I had my first spiritual awakening of that. And I, you know, through the steps, I helped me take a hard look at myself and, and delve into myself. Yeah. I had, uh, I was raised Methodist and I definitely, with my philosophy and religion background, my concept of my higher power is a universal, you know, all religions share one God in my eyes. Um, and then as a result, um, you know, the things I have in my life are definitely God-given. Um, as you know, I was Uber eating when I lived out here and I manifested. I said within my first year of sobriety, I want to drive an Audi and I want to make six figures. And I did manifestation techniques to do that. And all those things came true mm -hmm. by the universe showing me synchronicities and signs and following the path that God's pointing me to, which is also what brought me back to New Jersey. God said, you got a woman out there, you got a son out there, and there's a job out there. Mm -hmm. um, but do and, you think even with the manifestations that you created during that time, they were satisfactory? I mean, I think they were exactly where I needed to be at the time. Okay. So you got the car, you got the, the six figures, but did something change down the line if they were yeah. perfect at that time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I, I moved back to New Jersey, primarily because I fell in love with a woman who I was friends with since high school. And I moved back there and I, I got a house next door to her and uh, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. I helped get her through that. And for some reason, when she got through that, um, her own journey, she ended the relationship and went no contact with me. And so I went from me uprooting my life in California to New Jersey and relying on her for everything I know and happiness. And you said it best when I called you. You said if someone, <clears throat> if a female is going to take you out like that, maybe your contact with your higher power isn't as strong as you think it is. And that woke me up. That really woke me up. And uh, I fully believe that, you know, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And uh, my perception of that ending being a negative thing, I believe in alchemy. And and I had to turn that into something else. Um, so what did you turn it into? So... I had this second spiritual awakening. Uh, when this breakup happened, I lived next door to her. I couldn't get my head straight. I built a good enough friend group out there that a friend of mine gave me his lake house. He said, I'm going to be working in New York, stay in my lake house in the woods. There's a lot of God on this in property. Jersey, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of God on that property. And I started seeing all these synchronicities, uh, angel numbers. I didn't know what they were at the time, but I started seeing 444 everywhere. And not just on the clock, signs, I mean, everywhere. Yeah. I didn't know what any of that meant. I had to Google, why am I seeing 444? And as I Google it and researched it, it said that there are angel numbers. You're on the right path. What's happening to you right now is just exactly supposed to be happening. And then I just was drawn into spiritual literature. Like, I, this is nothing conscious that happened to me. 
Um, I started reading about three books a week, like Ram Das, Eckhart Tolle, um, The Celestine Prophecy, um, uh, Untethered Soul. Anything that was spiritual in nature, mm -hmm. I was just drawn to and absorbed it like a sponge. And mm -hmm. I probably read about 50, 60 books in the past six months. Mm -hmm. And as a result of me investigating what this spiritual awakening, spiritual ascension is, is uh, Dr. Carl Jung had something called an individuation process and shadow work is part of that. And I started getting into shadow journaling, which are, you can get them on Amazon. I believe I've sent you some, there's, yes, there's, there's, there's apps and prompts of journaling questions mm -hmm. that help you uncover and heal your inner child. Cause we all have behaviors that are ingrained as defense mechanisms when we're children. Yes. I show anger. My parents tell me being angry and showing anger is wrong. Well, I internalize that. And then I start being angry with myself and I hold that in and it doesn't come out until you have self-awareness. And as you know, through steps 10 and 11, conscious contact with God, promptly admitting you're wrong, mm -hmm. reviewing your day. That's all steps in the right direction to be self-aware. Sure. Um, so I just went on a, a healing journey. I decided that I would date myself for a year and just work on myself and through this shadow journaling and ascension. And one day I was just at work and I, I, I came into work and I said, what am I doing here? What it was the, like the, my whole world selling the cards, selling the cars. It was like, this is not spiritually fulfilling. This is not my purpose. Car sales. Um, I don't know how that would ever be. And being self-aware. I, I mean, I was self-aware when I did my steps, but as far as that, it was like this, this second spiritual awakening for me was like that. I was walking through the matrix my whole life on autopilot and the veil immediately had been lifted. And now I saw the world for exactly what it truly was. The flowers seemed brighter. The sunset seemed more beautiful. Mm -hmm. I could pick up on somebody's negative energy like instantly that that person's not good or that person's in pain. So perhaps the God in you is recognizing the God in everything. Person's place. God, I believe, is is inherent. Uh, there's a piece of God in all of us. Um, okay. And uh, and then you and took I, it to the next level. If we, then you, I took it to the next level. So job. when I came out to California, mm -hmm. my first experience, the first week was something called breath work. Mm -hmm. which I'd never heard nothing out being a closed minded person from New Jersey. You know, that's stupid. What is it breathing? Like I'm not going to do this, but I decided to give myself and my recovery a hundred percent. So sure. I said, I'm going to do this with an open mind. Let me try it. The first time I did breath work, I talked to God. Right. Um, for people who don't know what breath work is, um, there's several different styles of it. Wim Hof, alternative nostril breathing. Mm -hmm. What I did was a form of pranayama breathing. Uh, it's a three part breath. You hyperoxygenate your blood. It supposedly opens up your pineal gland, releases DMT. You have outer body experiences, laugh, cry, releases stuck energy inside of you. And I remember you laying can go on into trans like states. Trans like states. It almost feels like you're before. under the influence. It almost does. But it's all natural. But it's all natural through oxygen that the that, breathing, that the, yeah. the body has Hence provided the us. The word breath work. Work and it's work. It's yeah. work. Your body fights and resists about the first ten minutes, and then you go into a feminine state where it's a little easier and you get into a rhythm. But and usually, people that go, as you were mentioning before, like you, it was contemporary to investigation with wanting to do that, but you wanted to try everything to be able to really be on the path of recovery. Me personally, there's been when I first was introduced to breath work, I was like, I don't know about this. Uh -huh. I'm probably gonna, you know, these other people are gonna probably do what they're gonna do. I'm probably just gonna sit here and intellectually focused through this process because I think I might know better than this and it probably won't work for me. But then like when you start to actually do the breathing, 
like the, the exercise. Mm -hmm. And if you're really doing it wholeheartedly, absolutely. I started going into these like other realms of my mind. And to the point where when I was done, I was like, did, I think I just, that went by fast. Like, I mean, but then it, did it go by fast? Because maybe it didn't. Like maybe I was, there was so many different things that I was going through, through the, there was messages that were coming in through my mind. I was 100%. looking at delving deep into my past. There was a lot of emotion. I found myself crying in one moment and then, you know, laughing the from the yep. bottom of my belly in the other moments. And since then I've done breath work several other times. And I always see and realize that whenever I'm going into it, my ego will come and start saying something like, yeah, this is, you've done this before. It's like, mm -hmm. you, what are you going to get out of this differently than you did the other times? And every time I actually surrender to the process of breath work, I, I have a new experiment experience every single time. And it's always just, you know, groundbreaking for me mm -hmm. and my, my spirit. And uh, now we go on these retreats and sometimes um, we have friends like our buddy Chad that runs it and a couple mm -hmm. other people, um, Joanne too, she, she runs one, but, um, it's always different and it's always, you know, it's beautiful. It's really a beautiful process. So now you got into this obviously out on the West coast, mm -hmm. you, you went in, in your area in New Jersey where you live now, it was, um, not something that people were doing. No, when I, when I came out here, I did breath work. They brought Reiki to my facility, uh, yoga. Um, I became good friends with my breathwork instructor. He started taking me to sweat lodges. I was open to any alternative types of healing. Sure. And that stuff really saved my life early on in recovery. Okay. I continued to practice breathwork over the next, you know, four years or so. Mm -hmm. When this breakup happened and, you know, I was kind of shedding the skin of my past, so to speak, I decided to go to Reiki every Monday nights. And I found a Reiki out master there. out there mm -hmm. and I started going to her. And that is non-contact healing modality where they put their hands over you. They're trained to pull out and release negative energy from okay. you. Um, and I've had some major breakthroughs with my Reiki sessions. Mm -hmm. And um, through that, when I lived out here, Chad and some other people always said, you should do breath work. You should become a breath work facilitator. And I'm, I just don't think it was the right time for me at that point. Sure. But when I moved back to New Jersey, not many people did. I looked it up. There's probably one person in Manhattan and there's another woman in my town. Yeah. Who oddly enough, when I looked her up, was friends with Chad on Facebook. Mm -hmm synchronicities that happen in my life. I become great friends with this woman. She owns her own yoga studio. She's helped me design my business. I mean, she's 100% been in my corner. Um, so as you well took, as you the took Reiki his master. recommendation at this point, more recently in the last few months of becoming yes. a breathwork instructor yeah. on the East coast mm -hmm. in Jersey. Yeah. So I, I decided uh, to form an LLC. I started my own breathworks company you know, website, business card, I just, I, I and that get, wasn't me. That was, that was me manifesting that. And I, God give just it to you. I, I watched your, I listened to you as you started to tell me about, it. I I'm impressed with the fact that you implemented and incorporated a business almost immediately and how fast you did it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, most people think about certain things or they dream about certain business ventures that they want to, create but you manifested and you manifested in a accelerated fashion because yeah. i saw this llc come into fruition and all of this other stuff that you put together in order to, to put yourself out there almost immediately like mm -hmm. you didn't waste any time with it you were already pitching it to various agencies mm -hmm. and 
I think some treatment centers and things treatment like that. Treatment centers, and, uh, and, fitness and the centers. East Coast hadn't really seen something like this, so mm -hmm. so it's needed, and I think it'll be great. Like, yeah, it's already taken off. It's and that's the unit. How quickly that happened was with my self awareness, the synchronicities that I used to look back at my life and be like, oh, that dot connected to that dot, that dot. With my self-awareness, I'm in the moment and I'm like, that's a dot right now. Right. Follow that. And the universe, when you're self-aware of what the universe is giving you and those opportunities and you say yes to them immediately, good things happen. And that's sure. faith. That's faith in God. That's faith in the universe and trusting and being like, he's not leading me astray right now. And as you know, people from my past, the reason this happened so fast is God would put somebody from 25 years ago. I haven't spoke to him 25 years ago and said, I'm a web designer. I'm going to design your website for free. Someone from my past 25 years ago is, Oh, I'm a photographer. Let me do your photo shoot for free. This is all synchronicities in my life of people that I've affected unconsciously, not knowing how I helped them 25 years ago. And a lot of them told me, Oh, you have my back 25 years ago. I did. I don't remember. You know, mm -hmm. they are now karma coming back full circle and participating in my life and helping me. And the new people that come in my life, this Reiki masters, yoga studio, owner, this breathwork instructor who I'm a competition out there has Is been nothing but building me up and helping me. Assisting you and helping you. So have you started doing breathwork? Yeah. So as for, you know, as it, an instructor, yes, as you know, I've, uh, I've been doing breathwork. I've probably done over 500 hours of breathwork under various facilitators. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I just started, I, I did an event with the Reiki master, nine people showed up. I made money from that and was like, I can do this. And that's the catalyst when I just started doing everything. And what kind of feeling do you get by doing this? Me as an instructor? Yes. The reaction that people get, especially out there who've never tried it, first timers, oh, there's nothing like the gift of someone who's never done it before and, yeah. and crying. And what was that? or releasing energy and, and, and saying, this is something that could definitely benefit me in my life. Yes. Um, and as a result of that, I've, I've had, you know, one woman from a hospital who was an ultrasound tech come over, it changed her life. She refers me to friends. I signed Facebook within 20 minutes. I got people that found me on Facebook. I mean, I'm doing breath work over zoom to people here in California while I'm in New Jersey, while I'm in California. Well, it I'm sounds like this work. is much better than selling cars. Yeah. And it's a purpose. It's, it's, it's my whole purpose. life. I feel that I was put here on this planet to help people, help people heal. And when I first was in recovery, I followed literally carry this message to alcoholics who still suffer. Yes. And since I had this second spiritual waking, I don't, I don't disclose anyone. I feel I need to carry this message to everyone who still suffers. Cause as you know, you've heard in meeting, there's a lot of people that will say everyone could use the 12 steps. This could really help. Yes. There's a lot of people out there who don't know how to get out of their own way. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my job as a life coach and a breathwork facilitator is to help those people. And I have, and a lot of that is from my foundation in AA of doing a fourth and fifth step, clearing up the wreckage of our past, being aware, giving things over to God, honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, the things that the 12 principles teach us. Okay. So and, since, since we're talking back about God and mm -hmm. the importance of that, you know, sometimes when I go to yoga or when people go to like, when, when you go to a yoga session or Pilates or things like that, and there's an instructor and they're speaking to the group of people when I'm in like listening to like hot yoga or just regular yoga or what, what many different types of yoga, when I'm listening to my yoga teacher, I'm like, 
they use so many words that are in relation to what we're doing, the yoga practices and things mm -hmm. like that, where I realize like this person is well-versed, but they're also living this lifestyle. And, and I sometimes tend to wonder like, is this just from years of experience that they speak this well, or is this stuff coming from spirit? Because um, then I'm getting, what I'm getting at is honestly, like when you're doing, and I asked you, how does it make you feel when you're instructing people? And rather than being the student in a breathwork session, uh, or, you know, now you're in, like you're the teacher, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're teaching this stuff, uh, and you're in, you know, you're in the beginning stages of actually teaching. I think over a period of time, I'm sure this happened for Chad and all the other people that we know that have taught breathworks. When when things are coming, when you're yeah, putting that energy out through your talking people through the process of breathwork, is it coming from God or is it coming from knowledge base or is it coming from the heart or is it coming from the head or what? I think there's various modalities within the breathwork process itself. I know when I'm instructing them through it, that's the knowledge in my experience of, of doing breathwork myself. When I have someone before me who's laying on the ground and they're crying and I go up and I put my hand on their heart and I rub their chest or when I ground them by holding their ankles or I cradle the back of their head and they start crying, mm. that, is, that is me exchanging the energy that God has given to me and filled my cup and raised my vibration to help raise their vibration and help them fill their cup. And I know that's an, that's an energy exchange. That's an energy exchange from spirit through me to this other person. That's and powerful. I feel it. I feel when my hands touch another person, when they're in that state, as you described before, mm. whether it's euphoria, stirring up negative emotions, because it can get very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. the, the tears, the, the memories of when you're four years old come up that you thought you didn't even have in there, that stuff comes up during breath work. Sure. And you're going to start crying and you're going to feel that emotion. And my job as a facilitator is to realize that make that person, you're not alone. I'm here with you. I'm here to ground you. I'm here to bring you back from that experience and know that it's okay to let go and be vulnerable to this experience. Because when you're open and vulnerable to the experience, that's when you can burn through those negative emotions that are stuck inside your body. Mm -hmm. That is God with that energy exchange. I love it. The comfortability of me being a breathwork facility, I think is a combination of what God's put in my life, being a car salesman. You know, that's, you got to be confident. You got to, you got to deal with people. Sure. Using the wreckage of my past, they used to lie, cheat, and manipulate to people. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. I don't live that way anymore. That's yeah. God taking my life 180 degrees and using my defects as an asset. That's beautiful. I love that. I love it. Are there any questions today, Mr. Kerry? No questions. We had a couple comments. Uh, Chris B. said, good to hear my sponsor's story, but painful to listen to. The glory is knowing you're safe now, bro. Love you, Dean. Uh, Thanks, Chris. So I don't know if anyone can hear you. Can they hear you without this microphone here? Probably just a little bit. Yeah. So uh, you... she said, "Love what you do. God bless you." Mm -hmm. um, Garrett Lewis said, "Relationships are double-edged swords in recovery." Somebody said that relationships are a double-edged sword in recovery. One hundred percent. That's why I always emphasize the importance of a relationship with a higher power. Some people will call it God. Some people call it Jesus. Some people call it Muhammad. But either way, as long as um, I believe, for my own sake, I have that relationship with my higher source, which I very comfortably call God myself, that's not a double-edged sword. That's it. I, I mean, it's it's everything for me. It's what, well, it's my driving force. It's what I need to really be in love with throughout my life so that I can be comfortable in my own skin. I think this was... Uh, 
excellent, excellent time spent uh, talking about all of it. I, I always love the reason that I love doing these recovery podcasts with people that are actually in recovery from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that have recovered and are not using and drinking, but they have a story. I always love to hear their upbringing, what happened, what it was like, what changed, what put them in the path of recovery, and what they're doing with themselves in the recovery process. Um, it, it's just a beautiful thing. It's what this why I even wanted to create a recovery podcast in the first place, to let people know that we do recover, to let people know that there is hope, to let people know that if you or your loved one is struggling, like they're never give up. Uh, I know we lose a lot of people to this addiction, to to, to many addictions, to, uh, to alcoholism. Um, but there's always hope. I believe we, as long as we tap into our innermost self, like the deepest form of ourself, which that is where God is mm -hmm. inward, then we we get to have these big, beautiful lives. And um, and I I want to thank you for making the trip out here i know you were uh doing some soul searching and mm -hmm. and you went out to joshua tree this last couple of days just to be with yourself and continue yeah. to date yourself and be in the desert and feel god's presence mm -hmm. um uh but i want to thank you for coming on the podcast today and really opening up and and talking about yourself you're a beautiful soul beautiful human being i love you so thank deeply you. and uh until we meet again thank you thank you yeah i'd just like to to say that um you know, for me, my AA program got me and helped me build the foundation. And I used AA just pretty much as my be all end all. Um, and I know that works for a lot of people. For me, with my type of thinking and my type of awareness, I realize, and I've done some heavy research, as you know, into the foundation of AA and how Bill W found that in the eight tenets of the Oxford group and all the things the 12 step are pretty much sprung board from. Mm -hmm. My recovery in AA and the 12 steps had gotten me to a point of so far where I felt like there was more out there. And that's when I started researching a lot of these Eastern modalities mm -hmm. of um, Kundalini yoga and clearing your chakras, which are pretty much the same thing as, as you know, your root chakra is survival, which is based in fear. You clear that fear up. I mean, it's, it's, you know, guilt, shame, love, like Clearing those things are a lot similar to doing a fourth and fifth and an eight and nine of clearing the wreckage of your sure. past, getting rid of that fear, getting rid of that guilt, that shame, highest ego. You know, that's it's there's a lot of similarities in that stuff. And by doing and practicing Reiki, yoga, breath work, it is taking my AA program and recovery and elevated it to another level which as you know, I talk to you a lot that I cry with gratitude how God works in my life now mm -hmm. on a daily basis right? because I'm self-aware of the presence of God working in my life through these other modalities. And the breath work, if you struggle with an 11 step with prayer and meditation, sure. I struggled with meditation a lot. The breath work almost forces you into a meditative state. So it's good for people who struggle with quieting the mind or getting into getting out of your body. Yes. Um, oh, I could talk about that forever. The quieting of mind. Yeah. The itty bitty shitty committee that's in the head. And, and that's for a lot of alcoholics, yeah. that itty shitty, the itty bitty shitty committee or whatever up yeah. in your head, those voices get loud. Yeah. And with me practicing and, and helping other people practice this, it quiets those voices Absolutely. in your head. And it gets you in a state 
where you can just be one with source spirit and God. Hmm. And that's what this whole world's about. We didn't come on this planet to punch a clock, work nine to five and just, just it's exist. about tasting life. Yeah. It's about experiences. It's yeah. about companionship and friendships and, and relationships Absolutely. and experience. And that's what God put us on this planet to do. Um, agree with you if, now. if, uh, if anybody, I do breathwork on Zoom. If if anybody wants to reach out for a breathwork session, either Zoom or in person, mm -hmm. you can contact me at 862-330-8706, or you can visit uh, transcendhealingbreath.com or uh, my Facebook, Transcend uh, Healing and Breathwork LLC. Okay. Um, and if you have any questions about this and it's something new to you, I'll be happy to answer any of those questions for you. Wonderful. All right, we're signing off. We got some more guests coming into the next week and months ahead. Uh, thanks again, Dean. Love you all. Thank you. Signing Gosh. off. Have a good rest of your weekend, everyone.